2: And welcome to Spoiler Alert, episode 102. My name is Duncan. And I'm Simon. And uh, 2002 was the year Sam Raimi changed the superhero game with Spider-Man. Right. Uh, Matt Damon changed the spy game with The Bourne Identity, uh, particularly impacting the Bond franchise, which said goodbye in 2002 to Pierce Brosnan with the ludicrous die another day. There was a bunch of part twos in O2, Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets, Star Wars Episode II Attack of the Clones, and Lord of the Rings, The Two Towers that made a star out of Gollum, and uh, Andy Serkis' groundbreaking motion capture performance. Uh, There was also Maggie Gyllenhaal's breakthrough performance in Secretary, uh, and a number of films high in rewatchability for me, Hugh Grant and Nicholas Holt changing each other's lives in About a Boy, the soaring magnificence of Miyazaki's Spirited Away, uh, and the meta fun of Nicolas Cage writing himself into his own script in uh, Spike Jonze's adaptation. Ah, so good. Uh, Sam Mendes' beautifully filmed Road to Perdition, uh, M. Night Shyamalan's signs. Steve Coogan and Michael Winterbottom's first teaming up with the love letter to the post-punk Manchester scene in 24-Hour Party People. Michael Moore's provocative Bowling for Columbine. Adam Sandler dragged into credibility by Paul Thomas Anderson's Punch Drunk Love. Uh, Ed Norton and Philip Seymour Hoffman and Spike Lee's underrated The 25th Hour, which is notable for being the first film I saw that acknowledged a post-9-11 New York. Yeah, right, right. And uh, Leonardo DiCaprio worked with Scorsese and gangs of New York and Spielberg in Catch Me If You Can in the same year. That Spielberg teamed up with Tom Cruise for Minority Report. Great yeah. films there, aren't right. Yeah, some pretty good ones when I went yeah, out of that yeah. list. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, look, the only horror film
0: I could find from 1902 was... The Treasures of Satan, huh. yeah, again directed by French filmmaker Georges Méliès. Satan locks bags of money away in the chest, and a thief, or perhaps the owner of the money, it's unclear, tries to retrieve them, but is chased around by women with spears. There's a lot of trick photography of the stop and start, the camera variety, uh, and flashes of smoke, and a typically gorgeous painted backdrop. The whole thing is more comic farce than horror, but it's a fun, very fast three minutes. Plus, you get to see the man himself, director Méliès, as the would-be thief. Right. So that's fun. Cool. Also, the restoration I found on YouTube, which, of course, we will linked to, was pretty great. Cool. Uh, but what a curious year 2002 was for horror movies. There's a truckload of odd sequels. American Psycho 2. <laughs> uh, you know, anyone? Um, Halloween Resurrection.
2: Oh, uh, yeah. yeah. That's your favourite from oh, this franchise, isn't it? We've talked at length about <laughs> Halloween.
0: Cube, Hypercube. Oh, yeah. Uh, a lot of animal horrors, too, oh. I noted, like an extraordinary amount. Uh, several shark films, a couple of killer snakes, some rats, rabbits, <laughs> insects, and a crocodile or two. Uh, J-Horror rolled out sequels to Tomi, of course, uh, and The Grudge, alongside one of the greatest Japanese ghost stories of the era, Hideo Nakata's Extraordinary Dark Water, which yeah. uh, I love. It was such a soft spot for that film.
2: Yeah, uh, my wife, Lucia, loves that film, too. Oh. It's one of her favourites. Good taste, yeah. obviously.
0: As yeah. you know, yeah, yeah. America even got in on the J-horror boom with Gore Verbinski's pretty excellent remake of The Ring. And then there's some stuff that I, I really like that came out this year as well. 28 Days Later, Blade Two, Eli Roth's gooey debut cabin fever, cabin fever, Don Coscarelli's goofy fun Bubba Hotep, <laughs> uh, Neil Marshall's Dog Soldiers. That's a pretty great run of fright films, really. It um, is, coming, yeah. coming out of a, a pretty terrible 1990s. And we haven't even got to maybe my favourite underrated horror, The Oorts, Lucky McKee's tremendous indie horror, May. Uh, a coming of rage tale about a young woman disappointed by her failing attempts to make friends that mixes a touch of Carrie with a hint of Frankenstein. May was the film that I thought I, I surely would make a star out of Angela Bettis and make Lucky McKee a horror director to watch. Somehow neither of those things happened. Uh, but May remains a dark comic horror that I really adore.
2: Great. Um, coming of rage... That's a great term. Yeah, thanks for that. Yeah, that sounds like a, it sounds like a um an action film, you know, coming of rage, coming of rage. Yeah, yeah, starring Nick Cage, coming of rage. They should mix it up. Yeah.
0: Oh, Cage Rage is. I'd, it would have to be a younger actor, wouldn't
2: it? Yeah. Yeah. True. Maybe he can play the dad or something.
0: Yeah. Totally. Yeah. yeah. Like a like a Zac Efron when he was just <laughs> like if he was just coming out of, you know, a High School Musical.
2: Yeah. 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 Good idea. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And of course, in 1902, uh, you, George Millier, you know, did the, a trip to the moon. Oh, well, Prob- that's, the, yeah. that's the big one, uh, yeah. which, of course, you can catch on YouTube as well. But, um, yeah, uh, iconic, you know, yeah. the, the shot of the rocket um, hitting the moon. So, referenced in uh, so many films yeah. and everything. And music videos. And yeah. music videos, of course, yeah. Mm. So, um, so Simon, what have you been watching? All
0: right. Well, it's no
2: surprise because I've hinted at it
0: on Facebook. Uh, this month, we're talking all things omen with all three of the original films of the Omen trilogy. Mm -hmm. But as a complete nerd, I did some extra coursework. Right. Yeah. Uh, No, I didn't watch part four (laughs) or the remake. What? Instead, I watched 1980's The Awakening, uh, one of the many studio films that tried desperately to ride the Omen and the exorcists' coattails to box office glory. Uh, Instead of demonic forces, we get ancient Egyptian curses. As Charlton Heston's archaeologist sacrifices his marriage in the pursuit of unearthing the mummy of an ancient Egyptian queen. The night he discovers her remains, his daughter is born, and she finds herself possessed with the queen's spirit. Well, not right away, of course. That is to wait until she's old enough to be played by Stephanie Zimbalist, uh, best known now as the other half of the Remington Steel series. That's right. Heston has been one of the names floated for The Omen, so after missing that film and the absolute millions of my Gregory Peck, you can understand his willingness to jump aboard The Awakening. And to his credit, he gives it it all. I mean, mm. he doesn't hold back, you know, perhaps a little too much, maybe, <laughs> in betraying the caddishness of his obsessed archaeologist in the beginning. It does mean I never really get behind him, you know, mm. um, in the early stages. As this story unfolds, and sure, his commitment to the English accent here wavers a lot, <laughs> but he can't be faulted for energy and wild-eyed histrionics when the scene demands it. Mm. But The Awakening has some problems. Uh, the first is that the opening half of the film is sluggishly paced. There's the discovery of the tomb, his separation from his wife, the need to reintroduce his daughter as an adult. None of this is done with a lot of urgency. Uh, Things ultimately pick up, and the waiting does somewhat win me back. But that's really with half an hour to go in a one hour and 45 movie. Better they should have trimmed some fat in that first half hour, I think. Maybe got things down to a leaner 90 minutes where it really could have flowed. Mm -hmm. Uh, But a a bigger problem is one that faced a lot of studio-made horror flicks trying to jump on the bandwagon of decently budgeted, budgeted star-led horror films that came about before them. And that's the people who made this film don't really seem to want to lower themselves to make the horror film. Right. You know? They want the success, of course, and they seem aware of the, the necessary ingredients. You know, the, a big-name actor past his box office prime, uh, a tale of the supernatural, and regularly scheduled scenes of horror. But when it comes to that last part, that's when I feel that the enthusiasm for the project seems to wane. Right. Uh, death scenes, when they happen, seem rushed, as if everybody's embarrassed to have to film them in the first place. There's no setup, no tension, just random accidents out of nowhere, so they can quickly get back to their classy-looking, I mean, it's shot by the great Jack Cardiff, uh, Supernatural Tale. Except that's not the brief, really, is it? You mm-hmm. know, that's not what people are queuing up to watch. There's one great death scene involving Fallen Glass, clearly taking its cue from Suspiria from three years prior, uh, and a scene that Star Wars fans will delight in with N McDermott, the Emperor himself, <laughs> uh, showing up as a kindly therapist who gets killed by the possessed Zimbalist. Um, phrase I thought I'd never say. <laughs> it's actually a fun scene with both actors getting their teeth stuck into the material, but it smells an awful lot, lot like a reshoot. Right. You know, a, de- uh, a scene added late in the day once someone realised this film was pretty light on deaths <laughs> and, and uh, needed some more carnage. Uh, because it makes no sense, you know. It, it results in a scene that uh, doesn't fit the context of the film. I mean, why does no one care about the corpse of a noted therapist impaled in a swanky London office? It's just... <laughs> it may, someone should follow that up, you know. <laughs> but I will say, even as The Awakening misses the mark, the last half hour shows glimmers of the film that could have been, with a couple of decent horror sequences, and a really committed performance by Zimbala, She's so she's great in this, more than holding her own against the Hollywood heavyweight of Heston. It's just all a bit late, to save this one,
2: You're right. Yeah, this is one of those ones I've heard about but never seen, so... Right. yeah. Yeah. Um, but I, I did... W- you're right, I was kind of aware that it was Omen-influenced, so... Yeah, okay, yeah, I've yeah. I it pop up on a few of those. It, you know, if you like the Omen, maybe try this. Maybe try The Awakening. Yeah, and yeah.
0: I, I, I definitely get that. I mean, it's, it reeks of trying to mm. ride in on that, you know?
2: And that's the subtitle of um, Omen 4. What's that? The Awakening.
0: The, oh, the, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I actually have
2: not seen the Omen Four. I no just have no I. desire to see the Omen Four. No. The remake was um, the only th- the thing with the remake because I've seen the remake. I can I, I couldn't tell you anything about. It. I don't I don't remember anything about it. Was it f- faithful? Um, I, honestly, I can't really remember much about it at yeah, all. Yeah. It's really really weird, isn't it? Because mm. I've definitely seen it because I'm an Omen fan. Um, the best thing about it was it was released on six six six. Yeah. So well done. Yeah. Good good <laughs> work there.
0: Um so look, what about you? What have you been watching?
2: Um yeah, well it's been a it's been a, a horror month for me as well, actually. Um so uh, I watched Smile, um, helmed by first time director Parker Finn, uh, which is a surprisingly restrained mainstream horror film that is both grounded and elevated by Sosie Bacon's compelling lead performance. Uh the film is played straight and all the better for it. While the story is not especially original and it does have an over reliance on jump scares. It also slowly builds up the terror confronting the heroine. Uh, What is perhaps most encouraging is that the film was rescued from debuting on streaming, and instead given a cinema release based on positive test screenings, which I thought was that's great, which is great, yeah, because we're going to do the reverse. I'm like, ah, maybe we'll chuck this, you know, into uh, into a test screening. You know, you wouldn't think you'd have a test screening for something you plan to stream, right? Yeah, yeah. So yeah, Um, and Smile does owe a lot to Curse Films. Drag me to hell and it follows. Come to mind immediately, and it takes a visual inspiration from the far schlockier Truth or Dare. Um, I think that, I think Truth or Dear is one of those ones I saw on a on a on a on a plane or something yeah, one time. It seems like a plane. Yeah, yeah, yeah. probably heavily he, he, oh, heavily Lord, modified. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> just like we've modified this. It's just like you know this this ninety two minute film suddenly like seventy six minutes yeah, long. Yeah, yeah. Um, and look, uh, director Parker Finn must be com- complimented for creating a film with an unsettling atmosphere and delivering an effective opening scene that lets us know exactly what the gruesome end result for anyone afflicted with the curse is. And there is a scene midway through the film that delivers a rattling amount of weird moments and unexpected scares. Um, The film keeps its momentum, but it doesn't have the twists and the increasing of stakes to really impress. Um, But I will say, yeah, really strong lead um, performance from Sosie Bacon, who is... um, Kevin Bacon and oh. Kyra Sedgwick's daughter. Oh, wow. I okay. didn't know that until yeah. uh, well after, but she's really good in this. Mm. And I think, it, you know, a lot has to be complimented to her about being able to ground this and and, and make the character uh, sympathetic. So, um, yeah, it's one I'd recommend, and it was good to see it in a cinema. Yeah. Um, and also, like, the other film I, 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 I just recently saw, and I won't say much about because I, I f- it'll be impossible to talk about Barbarian without ruining the kind of right. twists and spoils that lie in amongst it. So, yeah. maybe once you've seen it, okay. um, we can have a chat about it. Yeah. Um, and maybe if, <laughs> listeners have, because I really think it's one of those ones that it's like smile, you could even probably talk around a lot easier. Yeah. But this one is really based on some pretty serious twists in wow. it. So, um, yeah, we can have a chat about that later sometime. I, I look forward to it. <laughs> yeah.
0: When the Jews return to Zion and a comet rips the sky, and the Holy Roman Empire rises, then you and I must die. From the eternal sea, he rises, creating armies on either shore, turning man against his brother, till man exists no more. Look, we've talked about it a lot on this podcast, and not just this episode, but plenty before, but we grew up with the Omen films. Mostly we talk about how we were all convinced that at least one of the franchise's deaths actually really happened and somehow we ended up in the finished film. Uh, which death depended upon which excitable kid was telling the story in the playground at the mm. time.
2: Are but you are you saying that they weren't,
0: Simon? Oh, well, we'll talk about <laughs> it, I'm sure, as we go through. We'll try to maybe identify them.
2: It's like finding out Santa Claus is yeah. real. And we begin with The Omen from 1976, uh, directed by Richard Donner, written by David Seltzer starring Gregory Peck, Lee Remick, Dave Warner, Patrick Troughton, and Billy Whitelaw. An American ambassador, Robert Thorne, and his wife Kathy suffer a stillbirth while in Italy and are given an orphaned newborn as a replacement. Five years later, while living in London, the couple encounter strange occurrences before an obsessed priest warns them that their son may be more than an innocent child.
0: The Omen aims to take the satanic
2: horror film into mainstream blockbuster territory and reap similar
0: creative and obviously box office success. And it really does succeed. Maybe not to the heights of those two films. But The Omen is cracking entertainment, uh, anchored by a solid performance, solid performances really, a well-paced build and, tremendous, and a tremendous Oscar-winning Jerry Goldsmith score. This really is the guide to how to make how to make a mainstream high-budget horror for me. And I don't think you can overstate how important the casting of Greary Peck is to this film. Mm. Uh, he brings a gravitas of an Oscar-winning actor to the role. Sure, an actor who could be a tad wouldn't at times, but a respected, admired figure in real life, and a performer who is prim- primarily known for his portrayal, portrayals of firm joy decency, mm. which helps w- when you're playing the American ambassador, but even more when you're asked to go on a journey where your protagonist begins to believe he needs to kill his own son. To uh, save the world. I mean, if, if Atticus Finch is ready to murder a toddler, <laughs> then you know things are serious, right?
2: Yeah. Um, yeah, no, you're right. I mean, like as you said in the intro, The Omen holds a special place in my heart. Perhaps the second horror film I ever saw. Uh, I remember the first was An American World from London, so I'm pretty sure oh, The Omen was tremendous. the next. This was released just a, a year before Star Wars, um, and it begins with a 20th century Fox logo, but without the famous John Williams scored fanfare mm. and then just two years later when I rewatched watched um, Damien Omen 2 post Star Wars in 78 it would have the, f- the yeah, front right. fanfare front and centre so it's quite interesting to watch yeah yeah but, oh they didn't they didn't bother they putting that and it's, it's interesting that you talk about Gregory Peck and this you know, I'd forgotten I've seen the Omen quite a few times hmm. but one thing I've kind of forgotten is there's a slow close up on Peck Towards the end, where he's near catatonic in the grief of his, uh, in the, oh right. sure, sure. You know, with the grief yeah. um, of his wife's death, talking about a prophecy and how he wants Damien to die, it's delivered with real emotion by Peck. And this may be the the, the time to discuss Peck's sad motivation for accepting the role. Uh, his son had committed suicide just a year previous, mm. and Gregory Peck was said to have been kind of tortured with guilt, as you would be. Uh, and what's incredible is that he decided to exercise his demons by portraying a father. Who would be convinced that someone's evil and needed to die? Yeah. But Peck also linked credibility to the picture and in a similar story to Star Wars, funnily enough. Yeah. At studio head Alan Ladd Jr., yet again, oh, that, that, that man, that genius, that eh? genius, that yeah. vision, he stepped in and backed the omen when no one else at 20th Century yeah. Fox would. Not only that, had it actually been around the studios and everyone had turned it down, and then he came in and saved it at the 11th hour. Yeah. And just like Alec Guinness, Peck's presence would encourage others to join the project. Um, and he also took a reduced salary in exchange for points of the profits. One of the best decisions yeah, very, uh, he made in his career, actually. Yeah, very Alec Guinness, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. It, yeah. it re- would reward him and bring him to a new burgeoning horror audience. And it would revitalize his career and allow him to take on even riskier roles, yeah. like uh, Dr. Joseph Mengel in The Boys from Brazil, Yeah, uh, just a couple of years later. And of course, in a fifty-year-long career, The Omen would be Peck's highest-grossing film. Yeah. Donna
0: talks about um, going around to Peck's house afterwards, like a year later or something. Yeah, and Peck is going, "Well, this is the house that The
2: Omen bought there," <laughs> and because Donna did not have
0: anything like Peck's deal. Yeah, yeah,
2: <laughs> that's right. Well, I mean, and this, yeah, and good point. This is a, a, a Richard Donner film, and, and very much made him. Um, yeah, he was, he was, he, he was kind oh, of very early on in the career. Yeah, yeah well, he, he'd been around for a while, but he'd done a lot of. Um, TV and he'd done some films early on in the 60s and then he'd gone back into TV but this was the breakout this was his top blockbuster thing and and he needs to be credited a lot for it it was his idea to remove the schlockier elements of the story and he very much wanted to boil it down to is this
0: really happening that's something i'm fascinated by this idea that richard Donner wanted viewers to doubt whether there was anything supernatural going on at all to travel the same journey as peck suspecting that maybe it was all just accidents and bad luck and crazy priests ranting in a swanky office at least until he's finally convinced of the truth it's difficult for me to see how that was ever possible and maybe that's just the weight of the film's mythology and marketing you know Mm. the incredible score perhaps and my history with the film but I can't imagine there ever being a time when you could sit down to the omen and be in any doubt that something demonic was going on. Certainly the first time a Rockweather team's up with Jerry's Goldsmith's synth arrangement to telepathically convince Jack Pallis' daughter to hang herself.
2: The game is <laughs> up, right? That's it. <laughs> yeah. It was, it was quite goofy there. I found that the um, it, it's almost kind of Doctor Who-esque sound effects, like, yeah, 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 kind of yeah. thing, like, accompanying... Yeah. Yeah, yeah, kind of accompanying the hypnotising of the nanny That's what I was going to say Is that That's kind of quite a laughable aged effect mm. But everything else around that is not uh, The shocking suicide of the nanny uh, And the stunned silent faces of the children Donna chooses to focus on different things um, Than other directors might in that moment And he focuses on the, the effect it has on everyone else Whereas Damien seems like quite <laughs> fine with it all even with American star and American director, the canniest decision is to give it a European setting, fitting nicely alongside other 70s European horrors. Uh, each scene set with an eternal autumnal feel. Deep oranges of fire and burnt browns of the fallen leaves, only occasionally pierced by the regal blue of Mr. and Mrs. Thorne's wardrobe. Uh, none more autumnal than the leaves themselves attacking Troton's priest as he races across the churchyard. The irony is the priest running toward a church that ultimately kills him yeah. uh lightning striking a steeple that falls and impales him Trotton's priest deciding his best course of action to persuade an American ambassador that his son is evil it's just to come in and just like ranting and raving hmm. as well <laughs> you know, it's like it happens quite a lot in the Soman trilogy where people you like you guys need to take a breath remember you're talking to someone who hasn't been Feeding on conspiracy theories and everything.
0: Despite broadly knowing where this is all going, The Omen does a masterful job of teasing out its discoveries. We learn the truth at the same time as Gregory Peck, piecing together the evidence at his side. It's the trick that the sequels never achieve. Mostly, I guess, because they can't, you know. Once a mystery is revealed, where do you go? How do you repackage that and tell Mm. it again? But I do love that journey, which isn't just a series of revelations, but a physical journey from ancient monasteries to spooky graveyards. Rooms papered with pages torn from the Bible like talismans. To alleys in the Middle East where if one is unlucky they could wind up decapitated. <laughs> Tying those discoveries to memorable locations and like ghoulish sites like the paralyzed near-dead monk whose scribblings provide a clue. is part of what makes this such a
2: great journey for me. Yeah, and, and re-watching this, how it starts shrouded in grief. Take away the, 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 the horror elements that creep in. Um, just it, it starts so depressingly with the death of an yeah. of, a, of a of an infant you know what i mean like and that it doesn't matter how um they even have happy times after that you know when they go walking along the river and they think that he's fallen yeah, into the yeah. water and then it's like oh actually he's there and it's like the swelling music and they're all happy and smiling and relieved but it's that constant threat of death that's always there the setting and the the effect of the music the way that it's used um really compliments it even just the kind of, not even the kind of spooky score but that kind of there's a there's kind of a sadness to the to the rest of it as well uh even though it's essentially a love theme that's written in there between the two thorns and of course for the, the most iconic moment that we've spoken about is uh the legendary decapitation by glass Window um the urban myth built around it um that it was a snuff sequence where the actor really died but they inexplicably kept it with a five camera setup um you know um, but it's also an important moment that ups the stakes, seeing as the photographer was picking up the knives that Thorn had thrown away in defiance of his destiny. Seeing the brutal death steals Thorne in his decision to kill his son, which I thought was actually uh, quite clever, because I think by that point he's or his wife has already died by that point, which you would think would be motivation enough for him to want to go and... Um, yeah. to do it, but it, it's just a constant upping of stakes yeah. on on Peck to kind of to, to, to follow through with his horrific yeah. thing he has to do.
0: And look, the deaths are all fantastic. I mean, if you stop to think about them, they don't make a lot of sense. None <laughs> of this franchise really do because, like, the deaths in the Final Destination films, which owe this film a yeah. huge debt, there's no one visibly causing them. They happen due to fate or an unseen evil or more to the point because – narratively, this would be just like a great time in the movie for an impaling or a beheading, you know? Yeah. And and several of these deaths feel like um, badly timed, actually. Like they should be
2: happening before people
0: reveal information to Thorn, you know?
2: Yeah, yeah, and it's like, if you're, the, you know, let's say it's the devil doing this, if you can hit a steeple with a lightning yeah. to, you know, impale, it's pretty precise. If you're doing that, why aren't you doing that to Gregory Peck once he's made up his mind to kill yeah. Damien? Yeah. Like, you know, just do that rather than... Waiting for the cops yeah. to kill him, and you know Jennings getting decapitated—that mm. is what actually
0: spurs Thorn on to. Yeah. You know, I mean, if he'd actually left him scrapping around in the dirt, picking up the daggers, yeah. what was he gonna do? Yeah. You know. That's right. What was he gonna achieve? <laughs> um, and look, all the deaths are top notch. Uh, just seared into my brain. Uh, I can't stand on a balcony without wanting to yell. It's all for you, <laughs> especially if like somebody I know is down there. Well, especially
2: if they named Damien. That would yeah. Be, oh. that, that would be the. Oh, she's kiss totally, totally, right there, eh? not it? Man, <laughs> that's my dream, eh? <laughs> yeah. uh, You're gonna befriend someone called Damien just so you can just for it. that
0: moment, <laughs> yeah. you know. Uh, but watching it now, I'm struck by the power of one of the simplest, less elaborate murders. Lee Remick, having survived a wonderfully shot early attempt on her life, is visited in her hospital room by the chilling Mrs. Baylock. and it's assumed thrown from the window to her death. This is great stuff. Great from the get-go, with Remick caught mid getting changed, her gown caught over her head like a wedding veil or maybe a funeral mm. veil. And then when she falls to her death, in what must have been one of the first instances of the by now Hollywood law, that if you fall from a great height, you will land on the roof of a vehicle. Right? <laughs> yeah, always happens. Uh, but it's improved vastly by having it go through an ambulance's roof, only for the doors to swing open to reveal her splayed out on a gurney. Displayed, you know, it's a yeah. tremendous sequence.
2: It, it, it is a great sequence. It's so theatrical, isn't it? You
0: know, ah, oh, it's 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 amazing, and it's one of the ones I don't think in automatically of. Yeah. when I think of the Omen, but watching it now, just yeah,
2: it's beautifully shot, beautifully arranged. Yeah, and I think you're right with that one, probably because, um, similarly to I guess the suicide a little bit, it's it's the kind of, it's the way that Donna decides to capture it. You yeah. know, I mean, like the the um impalement and the and decapitation. Uh, like, wildly inventive on their own. Um, yeah, but the yeah, way yeah that yeah. You know, a, a, as a death, whereas, you know, a, um, a suicide, a couple of suicides, maybe not so much. So it's actually down to Donna, how he captures those, yeah. Yeah, oh, absolutely. Yeah. And
0: look, just lastly, while I'm on to, you know, memorable deaths and events, uh, I've often held it, as anyone listening to this podcast knows, uh, any film can be made better by the inclusion of a nighttime visit to the graveyard <laughs> to exhume a body. Uh, yeah. Even Sweet Home Alabama might have been watchable if Reese Witherspoon had needed to visit some antebellum cemetery to dig up an old relative. There's something forbidden, uh, taboo about it all, mixed in with the unknown. What will you find, you know? The horror of what you'll find, and of course the fear of being caught in the act. So many great nighttime disinterments, you know, from the original Frankenstein to William Castle's underrated Mr. Sardonicus. It's mm. a great title, eh? Yeah. Um, Pet cemetery and Cemetery Man to the mm. hilariously unforgettable scene from Brain Dead, mm. uh, which we have just spoken about before. <laughs> That's right. But this one's my favourite, uh, full of tension and with two great discoveries, one horrific and one heartbreaking, mm. before finishing with a grueling escape involving the always painful-looking skewering on the spikes of an iron gate. Yeah, which uh, makes me wince. You yeah. know, when I think about it, I I, I love this sequence.
2: Yeah, this whole scene's amazing. It's a very visceral sequence, and um, yeah, has, has you know, uh, an exhumation of a body ever gone without, you know, kind of, it'd be quite anticlimactic if you were just like, oh, hey, we managed to do that, there was no problem. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, because it is a tightrope of a walk between the scary and the silly. I mean, this, this entire series mm. is, uh, and Donna does that really well, and as you say, Goldsmith's music is used really well, um but particularly in like a scene, this time around in the scene where Damien and the family drive to the church wedding. And uh, they just have these low strings that start And the stabbing piano And it's really slowly building up with each metre the car drives Until it floods the senses Just crescendos with Damien's yeah. wild outburst The way they use the music in that sequence I was This time around I was like Wow, that's really, really yeah. well done Really well put together and It employs horror techniques that films in its wake would use uh, Similar to Halloween There is a stalker's point of view Of the dogs hunting mm, mm-hmm. and Warner In that graveyard mm. sequence you're talking about and, of course, Carrie, the same year, would use the kind of twist ending. Mm. Um, however, the the Omen's ending would perfectly set up for a sequel and a continuation of the story in Damien Omen 2, uh, again, which apparently was Alan Ladd's idea. Did you know that? Oh, to, uh, to film it, the ending, so it yeah. opened. Yeah, I did hear that, because the,
0: regi- the original ending was actually success, wasn't it? It was yeah. like...
2: Yeah, it was yeah. success. They all died, though. Yeah. So, oh, no. so I, he I, managed to stab him, and he got shot by the cops, and then they all died. Yeah. And you can't d- have a guy stab a child seven times with yeah. sacrificial daggers and not get some sort of yeah. yeah yeah the cops will probably be like on the sixth one so, oh, maybe we'll yeah there. yeah um, yeah and uh, yeah Alan Ladd was turned to him and said ah oh, you know it it's a really good film did you ever think of having the kid at the end um, yeah alive and he's like oh right. Can I yeah. have some money? He's like, "Yeah, go for it." Yeah. So he got the shot. Um, uh, uh, it was remarkable. That, Magic. Yeah. Now we're gonna uh, head on to our uh, our categories. We always have categories, don't we, Simon? For these horror movie we um do. We do. reviews, we've we've done it with, uh, um, Freddy and Jason. So yeah. So we've gone. We always have a rating system. This one. How how could we go with anything else other than six out of six, right, Simon? Yeah. In three categories, of course. In three categories. So. so which one will get the perfect six, six, six? Yeah. yeah. I've gone the six out of six inverted crosses <laughs> um, for for deaths that can be ruled as explainable. Yeah. Okay. Mm. All right. Well, I'm I'm going to go I'm going to go
0: a five here. Right. Okay. Which is a a, a decent score. I mm. mean, a high 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 high
2: high marks.
0: Yeah. I mean, there's some wild accidents to be sure. I mean, yeah. they're going to make the papers. You know that that. That they
2: look pretty random. How how bad would you feel being the guy who didn't who who didn't put the handbrake on properly for the um, oh man the Yeah, you know, let's have a little uh, you know
0: sequel with that guy's life. Yeah, yeah, and I, he'll be saying like he did put it on properly. Yeah, you know, because of course he probably did, right? Yeah, you know, but that's not going to help, is it? No. The only death that's you know problematic and a bit suspicious really is Catherine's mm. because having almost died falling from a balcony, actually dying days later. Pulling over a hospital window is pretty unusual, right? Yeah. Uh, and surely someone saw that creepy nanny. Yeah. Surely someone, right?
2: Yeah. I mean, also, correct me if I'm wrong, I actually rewound this, and I'm like, I, does she jump through the glass of an un, of a unopened window as well? Is there a smash of glass? Right, yeah. I, like, I, I kind th- of, he, I think you hear that. Yeah. But yeah, I could be wrong. They don't make it clear. Like, you don't see glass smashing, but yeah. you hear the sound of it, I'm yeah. pretty sure.
0: Yeah. And maybe she didn't push her out. Maybe she will by demonic force, as happens in these films. Mm.
2: But uh, either way. Yeah, that's going to be a tough sell, that yeah, one. Yeah, it is. It is. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, th- one impalement and a heck of a de- decapitation and two different suicides. Um, yeah, so I, th- I think fairly explainable. Mm. Um, True. Except for that, that one suicide, probably. Mm. Yeah. Problematic, um, okay. For spooky animals, oh, sorry, what number did you give it? I gave it six. Oh, six, six out of six. I think that you can explain these all f- pretty well, yeah. So, um, especially in comparison to the rest of the movies.
0: <laughs> oh, oh, I mean, yeah. it gets
2: worse, obviously. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. right. So, it's a sliding scale. So, yeah. I think that, uh, as far as the yeoman goes, yeah. six out of six for sure.
0: So, look, the second category we chose was creepy animals, which, of course.
2: Famous Yes in, in this franchise Yeah I, I, Look I've gone for Five out of six for Spooky animals In this one um, The Rottweilers Being a servant of Satan Is effective mm. uh, A scary presence But it loses a point Because it, it's undercut By those goofy sound effects Right So that kind of This time around It kind of actually Made me laugh out loud Okay So I was like ah oh, man I, f- I forgot <laughs> The first time you see it It's like, Um and uh, what you know, and uh, but on the plus side, what I was indicating before is what Donna does well is the visceral action uh, that is especially impressive with the animal attacks in this. Mm. So the baboons hysterically attempting mm. to get at Damien mm. is just really claustrophobically intense. The Rottweiler attacks and Peck and the photographer are sustained and feel mm. real. Uh, and the way they use different animals to signify both a kinship and a fear of the Antichrist. Mm. So um, yeah. Yeah, look, for me, top marks, actually. Yep. I'm going to go the full
0: six. I'm yep. not bothered by this. Actually, okay. Think of their time. This is the intro of the Rottweilers, and they are fully menacing here. Yeah. Uh, staring at a woman until she kills herself. Yeah. That's how hard they stare. Yeah. Uh, padding around the Thorn Estate, emitting low growls, and then absolutely putting the bite on Peck and David Warner, and maybe my favourite film, well, let's g- my favourite scene of the film. So I've got to give them a six. This is near perfect. And right. this is really what made Rottweilers cool back when yeah, they were kids. Yeah, that's right. You know? Yeah. I mean, to make a breed of dog just seem cool and tough and, you know. Yeah. Yeah, that's amazing for one film to do that. So I'm going,
2: I'm going on Perfect Soaks. Nice. Okay. Uh, and then Satanic Lackeys we've gone for.
0: Yeah, look, for me, a mixed bag for the lackeys mm-hmm. here. Several priests gone bad seem to turn it around and become priests gone good again, mm-hmm. which isn't helpful to the forces of darkness, frankly. Yeah. Uh, and as wonderful a presence as Mrs. Baylock is, she takes several attempts to get Catherine killed. And ultimately becomes a nanny kebab when she tries to stop Peck from taking his son away to be killed. Right. So you know, of course, all's hell that ends hell. So the forces of course darkness ultimately get what they wanted. So I can't completely mm-hmm. you know complain, can
2: I? Yeah. So
0: I'm going to go for a solid four point five.
2: Okay, nice. Well, I'm going for a five for this one because yeah. I really like Billy White Laura's. Um, she's, she's amazing. She is incredible, and um, she's got kind of got that Mrs Minerva Miss Havisham kind of extreme gothic yeah and i just think she's so good in this and like you say those kind of crazy eyes she has yeah. um, at the end which almost reminded me a bit of psycho or something the way she's kind of coming towards the camera yeah. like mrs bates um and also the scenes where she is slightly defiant towards lee remick as well yeah, yeah. which i really liked um yeah so i i enjoyed that and how there was almost a standoff and she finally kind of caved and yeah yeah
0: um. Apparently that was another one of Donna's Wanting to keep things a bit mysterious And he was unsure about the casting Of uh, right. Billy Whitlock And was like I think maybe he was imagining somebody A bit more Mary Poppinsy, and And you know Someone yeah. obviously who seemed kindly and lovely Whereas this yeah. woman Immediately seems a little bit You know Yeah, um, yeah. But but uh, like you and I He fell in love with her performance You know Yeah that's right And I mean she had this incredible career Mostly on the stage Yeah But yet She's always going to be Yeah Mrs. Baylock.
2: Yeah. And uh, Hot fights for me. <laughs> yeah, you know, that's right. Which is, that's right, which is, which is pretty funny seeing as she was like yeah. the, the muse for Samuel Beckett. so it's uh, kind yeah, of, yeah, absolutely, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so one of the great <laughs> stage, stage uh, you know, play yeah. And yet for us it's just, oh, The Omen. Yeah, oh, course, yeah, 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 yeah. It's more than like throws Lee Remick out of a window, yeah. right?
0: Like I was reading her obits <laughs> and they were all talking about The Omen. It's just like, you know, Omen star. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. It's amazing.
1: Look at me, Damien. It's all...
0: Okay, and now we're on to Damien Omen Two from 1978, directed by Don Taylor and an uncredited uh, Mike Hodges, starring William Holden, Lee Grant, Jonathan Scott Taylor, Lucas Donnett, Robert Foxworth, and Lance Henriksen. story by uh, Harvey Bernard and screenplay by Stanley Mann and Mike Hodges. Damien is now a teenage boy, uh, raised by his aunt Anne and Uncle Richard, who is the head of the vast Thorn Industries. He begins to discover his dark destiny while at military school with his cousin and best friend Mark. Meanwhile, as others also come to suspect Damien's true identity, the bodies mount up and his own uncle begins to realize the danger they're all under. Mm.
2: Released in 1978, two years after the original, Damien Omen 2 was conceived as the second part of a four-film arc. Um, Now, busy with a little movie called Superman, Richard Donner didn't return, nor did original screenwriter David Seltzer, who said he had no interest in doing a sequel. So, with only the producing team to guide the film, it is a relief that the movie is so successfully continues the visual consistency of the first. Right. Uh, an autumnal colour palette transforming into winter, including a stellar opening shot introducing a teenage Damien walking behind flames. Um, and it progresses beyond the film's first film's season into a bleak winter the further that Damien succumbs to his nature. Look, while the film's main plotline sticks a little too much to the original, you know, people's growing suspicion that Damien is the Antichrist, the film's subplot exceeds the original. Um, And for this reason, I'm going to say that Damien Omen 2 is actually an underrated horror sequel uh, with more pathos and character growth involved than the original. The Bible also becomes a tool for the Antichrist. There's this great sequence where, sitting down with the Holy Bible to understand his nature, his distraught cry into the wilderness of, why me?, is a subversion of Jesus' similar searching question to the heavens in the Garden of Gethsemane. And it's a vain plea to be spared of his role in this world uh, and followed up by a sullen Damien unable to confide in his cousin as the last post is played in his military school. It's sequences like that that really stand out to me. Yeah, right. Yeah.
0: Uh, Interesting. Look, for me, this one's a step down. Oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, Obviously. But there are things I really like about it. Uh, The kid who plays Damien is really solid, I thought, Mm. you know. Um, the decision to have him studying in a military academy, mm. ah, that's perfection. Yeah, that's that's a wonderful choice. And following up the first film's casting of two distinguished Oscar winners with two more distinguished Oscar winners is, is a smart move. But but for me, I found it lacked the style of the first omen. Um, y- you know, maybe it's a result of the firing of Mike Hodges and the replacement of him with Don Taylor. Uh, but, it, it, but I just felt that Taylor and cinematographer Bill Butler have turned out something that, that sort of lacked Is a bit too bright and a bit too warm for me, you know? Uh, It ends up looking a little bit like a TV show, one of the many TV movies that Mm -hmm. um, Don Taylor was known for directing. Uh, There's nothing that's dark and menacing like the graveyard scene on the incredible, you know, from the first one, or the incredible death of uh, Lee Remick's character in this film, you know? Mm -hmm. Uh, Instead, every death scene is bathed in light, the majority taking place, as as to be fair, the first film's dead, in broad daylight, you know, in absolute. Day- daytime and fortunately the death scenes are, to are fantastic, aren't fantastic yeah they? they are you know uh three of them are absolutely seared into my memory <laughs> again uh poor joan hart picked it by ravens who pluck out her eyes how do i know that's what happens because she yells my eyes <laughs> which is kind of hilarious before stumbling out of the way of a truck which sends your broken body flying i mean that's yeah. You know that that was one of the ones we talked about in the schoolyard. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah the, the the birds was real, but the truck was an accident. <laughs> it's like, yeah, but there are shots of the truck driver earlier. You know, yeah. building up the anticipation there. They were just they were just um, shoots later on pickups pickups. Like, yeah, oh, well, we've got well, this. we've got the shot of the stunt per- presumably a stunt person. You know, <laughs> uh, I, I love the fact that she's uh, frequently referred to as that young woman. You know, yeah. Which is weird because actress Elizabeth Shepherd was 42 at the time. Yeah. Um, I don't know whether they planned to cast someone young and it didn't happen. And the script is never adjusted for the fact yeah. that they cast a 42-year-old. Right. Yeah. They're always calling, ah, oh, that young woman.
2: Yeah. You know? Yeah, that's quite strange. I mean, I'm 50, so I'm not complaining, you know. <laughs> I'd love people to call me that young man. But <laughs> <it's>, <laughs> young man. It's unusual. Yeah, I guess if it's... Um William Holden, who was probably even older than her at the time. It was probably like 60s, so he's like, oh, that young woman. So yeah. yeah, 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 but but he's not the only person
0: to say it, so no. it just seemed odd. Yeah. It's funny.
2: Look, to me, I really enjoyed watching this film. Uh, Jonathan Taylor Scott's performance is the linchpin for me. Very well cast, and the film plays so well with his growing awareness of his power and his importance, um, and never better realised than his inner conflict at having to kill his cousin, literally making us have sympathy with the devil. Uh, by killing his beloved cousin Mark, the only person he ever really truly likes. Mm. It is at this point where the final human connection is severed for Damien, where the film, where the human part of him is destroyed and he embraces his destiny. Look, Omen 2 was in the hands of Mike Hodges, Mm. director of Get Carter, uh, who would have an unusual career directing indie hits like 1998's Croupier, but also 1980's Flash Gordon. Mm. Uh, But within weeks, Hodges would be fired Producers claiming he was too slow, pushing the film over budget. Funnily enough, they pointed to the first scene. I found this out afterwards. That, that stood out to me as the example of his indulgence. The shot of Damien walking with a fire in front of him mm. apparently took half a day to shoot, which was too long for them. Wow. Uh, so the film was given to Don Taylor to complete, um, and he would make a few interesting calls to the script, reducing Lance Henriksen's role, Yeah. and most significantly adding the reveal of Mrs. Thorne's dedication to Damien at the end. Yeah, which is great. I mean you've
0: got a lot yeah. of a twisty ending. But um look, one of the things I talked about when I talked about the omen was how it, it, it dealt with the slowly slow unraveling of information mm. and, and talking on this journey to discover the truth. Um, you know, it's about a protagonist learning the truth about a son's evil origins. Mm. Uh Omen too, as you say, is about the evil child discovering the truth about himself and coming mm. to terms with his own Devilish destiny, and that's a really clever move. It's, mm. really, it's smart. I like this thing. It's a great idea, great concept. Good on paper, even. Mm. Uh, I just wish the film had committed to it a little more. And I think, you know, coming coming down to things like cutting Henriksen's role, mm. I think it's a real shame. You know, yeah. um, I, I just wish they'd spend a bit more time on it. You know, um, rather than just giving Damien his reverse Jesus in the desert moment. You mm. know. Imagine we've seen the seeds sown by Lance Henriksen a bit more and the other evil acolytes, you know? A real seduction of him, you know? Yeah. Towards the dark side, towards the devilish birthright. Um, like, I really like Jonathan Scott Taylor's honest performance as a teenage Damien. Um, I just wish he'd given him a bit more to work with. Mm. Um, is it a little bit weird, though, that he doesn't know who he is? Like, wh- what he is? Like, I, if you told me... Um, watching the omen whether that child knows he's the yeah. son I would assume he did and it, it's a yeah. little bit they make a, a a smart decision in the first omen of that kid hardly ever talks which yeah. I don't believe a five year old is like that but it's, yeah. it's smart because yeah. you know he's more menacing by not talking yeah but I always got the sense that he knew who he was you know
2: right yeah I mean maybe he does I always just assumed that he was ne- uh, I mean you can watch it you know, it's ambiguous, but you could watch it in that he's purely reacting on instinct to situations. So, if you've got a power within you, you don't necessarily know that no one else yeah, will have yeah. that power. And so, you would, you know, yeah. um you would just go, Oh, I don't like this. I'm, I'm, oh, there's someone's dead. <laughs> that person yeah. I didn't like. Well, yeah, that's you know. right.
0: That's one of the things they say that the deaths aren't caused by, you know, Satan, but actually caused by Damien, yeah, willing these deaths to happen, which right. is. I don't know, that's unusual. I'm not yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah.
2: And I think that's a problem going going forward, um, that, that really stretches it. In two and three, I think it's yeah. less of a problem in one. But in two and three, you're like, who is doing this? Because it doesn't there's stuff that Damien doesn't isn't privy to, knowing, and then yeah. people are dying. Um so yeah, it, it's <laughs> it is a little bit strange. Whereas I think in this one and the third one it's more like, Well, it's just Damien doing it by that point. Yeah. Whereas th- this kind of crosses over where you're not too sure. Um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah.
0: yeah, I'd never really thought about Like, is Damon, Damien willing these people to die, or is, yeah. it, or is it, you know, another power acting on his behalf, which is what I always assumed, I guess? Yeah. But it's an interesting to think about it. Look, in the same way uh, that I felt Damien's discovery of who he is I felt a little bit rushed, so does William Holden's, you know? Yeah. Uh, gone is the detective work of the first film. Now our hero is an absolute unbeliever until the m- moment he's shown one piece of evidence yeah. and then becomes. Uh, a divine instrument of murderous justice. You know, it's so quick. It's on a dime. It's kind of disappointing. I miss the investigation in the first film. Uh, And like I say, it's a stretch to expect the audience to go on that journey twice in a row. Yeah. But I still felt William Holden's um, turn. Yeah. was remarkably quick. He just like, you know, I don't believe any of this. You're all just, it's ridiculous. It's crazy. It's like, Yep, I'm on. Yeah, Let's
2: go. And, and and that's actually a a big problem for me. Like the central plot to me, if the central plot is William Holden's, I didn't find as interesting. He's he's not the protagonist of this. No. Film. So which which I haven't watched this this film that many times, but watching it this time, I was really invested in in Damien. Oh, totally. Um, but I wasn't, in the other certain rec- was like, this is just a rehash. Like, why are we going down this road? Yeah. Of, you know what I mean? Like it just seems strange. It's like oh. it's like watching, you know. Friday the Thirteenth Part Seven and people going, uh, you know, just for forty five minutes. People going, wow, who's this Jason character? You're, like, oh,
1: you're so far yeah, behind, like people. <laughs> yeah,
2: yeah, yeah, This isn't what we want to see. Yeah, yeah. Um, and whereas the Damien was coming from a from a different point of view, um, yeah. So I, I I kind of found that all the stuff with William Holden in this one was just like you say, just a rehash. Yeah, and and really quickly where you're just like, oh come on. Yeah, like, it's basically based on his his his. You know, aunt doesn't really like him, yeah. and then that's it, really. Yeah, I mean, it's problematic,
0: I guess, because they need to, for him to, him to become aware. But if they spend too much time on it, then it's not very interesting for us because it's been done before. Yeah, we've gone on that journey in the
2: previous film, so. Yeah, and it's, it's kind of the same with the beginning with the um, all the sequence with uh, Liam McKern and it. You know, yeah. Where I kind of this time round, I was like, is this any of this really necessary? Like, it's, yeah. it seems like a weird place to start there. Yeah. And then move forward just so you've got some, like, some holdover from the first film. And, and some Frank, some, some painting that kind of, I was like, really? That's going to be just slammed up? That's just slam up. That's, slam That's dunk? it. Oh, look, it's him. It's like, well, come on, it's just a painting of a guy. Like, even I was convinced, and I'm watching the movie. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I know what you're going
0: for. And I was looking at the painting and going, yeah, I suppose slightly like him. Yeah. I guess a little bit, it's <laughs> yeah. broadly similar. Yeah. Yeah, not enough for me, for me to just grab some daggers and kill them. Yeah. Okay, so what have you got for scores here, Simon? Oh, well, look, I mean, I'm going to kick it with creepy animals. And look, your mileage may vary on this, but I like ravens, you know? They seem to be kind of adorable, adorable, big goofy-nosed birds with lovely black plumage, Yeah. you know? I really like them. What they're not to me is scary, or <laughs> threatening, really. Certainly, they don't seem as dangerous as a Rottweiler with a low throaty growl. That's true. Pat- padding down the hallway towards you. Uh, look, I'm, so I'm going to give them a 1.5 out of 6. All right. And really, that's only on account of the fact that they, they actually do kill someone. Yeah. So I, I can't, like, totally write them off because there's a, there's a body count here. Yeah. And I've got to give them some
2: credit for that. So yep. 1.5 from me. Oh, okay. Well, I've gone quite high for this. I've gone for 4 out of 6 for this. Oh, it's impressively high. As synonymous as the Rottweilers, Rottweilers were with the Omen. The ravens in Omen 2 are responsible for, for perhaps its greatest death sequence. And the eyes of the raven are everywhere, focusing on victims, causing Damien's suspicious aunt to have a heart attack. And of course, attacking the reporter in a sustained assault that taps into the Hitchcockian fears of birds pecking eyes and clawing scalps. Uh, it is a brutal sequence, punctuated with a frankly acrobatic death by Mac Truck. Yeah. Uh, and also the ravens get a bonus point uh, for dominating the movie poster. I always remember this movie poster, and uh, becoming so memorably the physical representation of the Omen right. um, was just those ravens as the movie poster. Huh. So, yeah. Yeah, wow, that's interesting. We see this differently, but that's yeah. fine. That's
0: good. Yeah, That's good. Look, um, how how are you doing on
2: explainable deaths? I've gone for a four out of six on this, because yeah. actually when I went through it, I was like, look, these are pretty spectacular. Mm-hmm. Uh, the deaths in Omen 2 are ramped up in gore and an extended torture for the victims. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, And on average, they have even more memorable deaths than the original in some ways. While the original has the iconic decapitation and the impaling, and of course the, you know, the the nanny suicide, Omen 2 has the drowning under ice, the slicing by wires in the elevator, and most striking of all, the raven's pecking eyes out, the blinds woman who then walks headlong into an oncoming truck, which all indicates that the devil enjoys some, you know, being creative with his murderous rampages. In some ways, as you said, it's a proto final destination. Freak accidents that can often be masters suicides but it loses a point for the final two deaths which at best can be seen as a murder-suicide when Fay Grant stabs William Holden and then Damien physically sets her on fire. So I was kind of like, I don't know how you explain that.
0: Yeah, look, this is I, I've also gone uh, a less than perfect, a little higher than you I think I've yeah. gone a conservative 4.5 on this Right. Uh, the old aunt dying at the beginning is a heart attack, nothing out of the ordinary there. Uh, a reporter picked by ravens and run over by a truck? Look, unlikely. <laughs> <laughs> I will grant you that. But surely, just a freak accent. Uh Falling through the ice to drown in the freezing water below? Seemed pretty natural. Plenty of witnesses. I will say that is... Maybe my favorite death in this franchise, potentially.
2: I did. What's that? The, the
0: ice death. The ice death is. Look, it's. Uh, it's so prolonged. Like when I want to watch it this time. Yeah, I was yeah, like, look, wow, this is ghostly. So Hollywood tiring. royalty Louis is the star of the Untouchable All Quiet in the Western Front, dragged beneath ice and carried along under the surface as he helplessly batters at the ice ab- above. You know, it's amazing. It's genuinely uncomfortable. It's mm. a nasty death. And it's prolonged, as you say, mm. uh, as well. And, and what I love about it is there's even a moment where it teases he could be saved. He yeah. could come through the eyes and be rescued. Uh, it's not to be. I yeah. love that about it. It's, it's the sense of dwindling hope is part of what makes it so memorable and grim. Um, the deaths that prevent me, however, from giving this film a perfect six are the elevator, uh, which has to seem suspicious, right? Surely. You know? Uh, elevators don't routinely drop like that, do they? And then stop? And there would be a workplace safety investigation, surely, yeah. to, to, to talk about why that cable then snapped and went yeah. through just sloppily, messily
2: cutting this dude in two. It's, just, it's the same as the guy who left the handbrake off. It's like someone's going to be paying for that. Yeah. You know? But that's why it's going to create some problems.
0: Yeah. Yeah. But look, like you, the final explosion at the museum is what really yeah. prevents me from giving this full marks. Uh, I know we had a gas valve teased earlier. Uh, but an explosion taking out two of the richest people in America. Yeah, you know that that deserves some serious attention. While well, their son was there and the only one who survived. Well, yeah, they're sorry, yeah. They're I mean nephew. he was there. Yeah, which is weird. And also, you know, I've seen those like um, uh, murder mysteries where they find a body in a fire and then it's yeah. like, yeah, but they've been murdered and they investigate. They're mm. going to find a dagger sticking out. Yeah, to, how are know, you going to explain that one? Yeah, so yeah. no, that's that's problematic. Yeah, tough sell. Um, and satanic lackeys. Oh look. For me, absolute masterclass in demonic servitude here. Mm-hmm. Yep. All the lackeys bring their A-game. Yep. Paul engineers his way around the boardroom like an evil pro, sidestepping his adversaries, backing down smartly, I think, mm-hmm. when he needs to. Only pushes his agenda again when he senses the time is right. Yeah. You know? That's great work. Lance Henriksen, Sergeant Neff, is on hand to give Damien the subtle pushes he needs when he needs them. No notes for me, for, for him at all. <laughs> uh, near flawless performance. Uh, and finally, there's a last-minute surprise lackey come-from-behind move to really drive the point home, if you pardon the pun. Mm. Uh, it's great work all round. Great hustle. Six out of
2: six. Right. Nice work. Yeah, I've gone to five out of six, because few lackeys in the series can compete with Billy Whitelaw's Mrs. Baylock. But Omen 2 earns a few points for its sheer number of satanic lackeys, as you say, and their effectiveness. Yes, effectiveness, I'm rating them on. Yeah, Yeah. and Lance Henriksen, most strikingly, is a military school instructor who is the only character in the series to successfully tell the Antichrist that maybe he should calm down a bit. (laughs) (laughs) But also, as you say, Paul Boer, who Works for Damien's uncle, um, slowly reveals himself to not just be an ambitious businessman with the taste for the unethical, but also a true believer in Damien's prophecy and shows him that drowning an old man beneath the ice is an acceptable way to eliminate people who disagree with you. Mm. That was a point where I was like, who's doing this? Is this that guy? Because that was his kind of enemy, yeah. was, was rival. He's kind of like, is he going, hey, see, I've got Satan to get rid of that? Or is that Damien going, I'll get rid of that guy for you? I don't know. Yeah, this becomes problematic in this film. (laughs) Yeah, either way, well done. Um, And of course, as you say, Damien's aunt and Thorne has a twist ending where she kills her husband to protect Damien, claiming she's always belonged to him, Uh, which is a phrase that always stuck in my head along with the, um, it's all for you, Damien. It's that kind of possession thing. And then madly yelling out her nephew's name. Mm. Damien! Mm. (laughs) So while there isn't one... Uh, Lackey as strong as Mrs. Baylock. Combined, they make an imposing cabal of disciples.
1: I'm here, Nazarene! It's, it's time. time!
0: And look, we've made it through to the final part of the trilogy, Omen 3, The Final Conflict from 1991, directed by Graham Baker, written by Andrew Birkin, starring Sam Neill, Rosario Brazzi, Don Gordon, and Lisa Harrow. Now an adult, Damien is the head of Thorne Industries, and with political aspirations to boot, uh, soon he follows in his father's footsteps and is made the ambassador to the UK, mostly so he can prevent the rise of the Son of God, the Nazarene, as they keep saying all the time, uh, who Damien has discovered will be born in England. He is also being hunted by a band of monks who have recovered the deadly daggers that are the only way to kill him.
2: Mm. This is only the second time I've ever seen this film. And the most frustrating thing is that the film has so many narrative possibilities. Yeah, um, It should be liberated of the restrictions of its predecessors, Uh, It could start at any point, but instead, Thorne is still trying to increase in power, rather than reveling in an already established conquering of the world. It would be much grander to have him as like a de facto emperor, uh, calling on his military training and sending men into battle. Uh, Instead, he's in offices and doing TV interviews. Um, And then you've got the Dirty Dozen squad of priests... Determined to kill Damien They're quite interchangeable And the film devolves into their increasingly inept Attempts to kill him And watching this as a trilogy in close succession Which is what I did It makes the climax surprisingly unsatisfying Especially considering how much time has been invested In trying to kill Damien throughout these three films
0: Yeah look this film is a real Damn squib Almost completely lacking in the original's tension It promises the end times But then gives us life as normal really You know, Mm. TV chat shows, people going to the park uh, with only the odder side about trouble in the Middle East to make us think something is brewing. You know, when you've got characters talking about things happening, yeah. you know, but you're not seeing any <laughs> sense of actual. <laughs> yeah, that's that's so disappointing. It, it is the most disappointing minor apocalypse in cinema history. <laughs> There's none of that first film sense of discovery either. The cabal of Antichrist killers already know what they're dealing with, so we just get to sit back and watch their bumbling attempts to kill Damien, or falling, or uh, failing laughably, laughably like the inept small-time crooks of the Lady Killers. Stumbling into their own deaths most of the time. Uh, the first guy to die may even have been a genuine accident. Like, the devil didn't have to do anything <laughs> with that guy. No supernatural involvement at all. Just an idiot tripping on a rope and, and then getting burnt to death, you know?
2: That's a great death, though.
0: It's a great death, but it's ridiculous. Oh, it's absolutely ridiculous. Like, I don't, I'm i not convinced anything was done to cause that no. death. No. He just tripped on a rope and fell through some plastic sheets yeah. and electric wiring and burnt to death. Yeah. Uh, it makes no sense Two other would-be assassins get themselves pinned under a grating And what happens then? Do they yeah. drown? Or are they still there? Yeah, Do they I,
2: starve? I, yeah, I just assume they starve because no one knew they were there, right? I mean, it's so stupidly unclear, right? Yeah And what is that place where they're just in the middle of...
0: Well, I assume if this film cares anything about continuity Which it doesn't because mm. you need seven daggers to kill yeah. the Antichrist Not one And they've all got one dagger each But they do have to kill him on holy ground, apparently. So, I don't know, maybe that BBC show was on holy ground, you know? Yeah, Yeah, I'm not sure. But (laughs) I assume that was a church somewhere.
2: My old mate Sam Neill is is, is well cast. He's got quite a contained performance initially that fits in with the previous incarnations and it slowly turns campier and broader (laughs) as the film continues. From his arrogant swagger toward an assailant being mauled by his pack of dogs to his soliloquy in praise of the devil and against Jesus, is a delicious piece of grandstanding that is well captured by director Graham Baker. But the third act, Damien ends up just calling out the reborn Jesus by yelling Nazarene a lot. Nazarene. Uh, um, and Neil fully embraces the frankly silly side of a series that is teetered on the edge of comedy throughout. Yeah. Uh, it really just goes just tips over. <laughs> yeah, now, no, no. About, about midway through this film. Okay, I'm
0: just going to, I've got to say this. I feel like I could spend the rest of this podcast just talking about this film's homosexual subtext, yeah. or, or, or actual text, I, I believe in this case. Uh, sure you could, as some have argued, that Omen 2 presents Damien's cousin as a potential kind of love interest, mm. uh, and maybe so given his plea to have him join him. But that's nothing compared to what's going on in The Final Conflict. So the first hint of it is when Damien's right-hand man, Dean, reacts in shock with a homophobic slur, Upon seeing a gay man, which I thought, well, it's unusual, isn't it? I mean, mm. the 80s, you know, to which Damien, Damien replies, they're all God's creatures, which is a pretty funny line coming from, you know, the son of Satan. Yeah. <laughs> but then a couple of scenes later, Damien delivers a monologue to his dad, Satan, while in, while in his own personal shrine that includes a life-size version of the crucifixion, the only one I've ever seen, in which Christ is now to the cross face forward. Yeah. Face forward, so that Sam Neil can press himself against You know, Christ's back, running his hands along his arms and caressing his crown of thorns uh, like a would-be lover as he bemoans the fact that Christ is born through the gaping wound of a woman. Oh, what an extraordinary scene, you know? Yeah. So if you want more, this film gives us more, including a scene in which Damien bloods a teenage boy smearing the blood of another man on his cheeks Mm. in some sort of twisted rite of passage to adulthood. Uh, As the teen stares up up at him in just absolute rapture, Mm. you know? That boy would later become his loyal servant, pledging his love and delighting in the fact that they can finally become one. Yeah. Uh, Of course, Damien has a female love interest, Lisa Harrow. uh, Lisa Harrow's reporter, who he sleeps with. One review I read used the words, makes makes love to, but I wouldn't go that far. (laughs) Before throwing her on her front and rather roughly doing what I assume he would wish to do to the life-size statue of Jesus he keeps in his (laughs) attic. Uh, This film has some worrying ideas, I think. Yeah. You know, uh, conflating homosexuality somehow with... Damien's satanicness, you know, mm. uh, and I'm surprised that no one seems to really talk about this because it just mm. seems such a strange, yeah, and such a such a through line of this film as well. Yeah, you know, it's not just something that comes in one scene; it's in several scenes right yeah. throughout this film. Yeah,
2: uh, <laughs> that's, that's interesting. I mean, it did strike me in that in that sequence uh, that you. You know that we start talking about where he does that big soliloquy, which very much felt like he was on a stage, you know, because yeah, it's all yeah, very yeah, yeah. like a spotlight. There's a literal spotlight on him, and everything else is bathed in darkness, except for this, um, yeah, like you say, life-size um, statue of yeah. Jesus on a cross.
0: I mean, who says to the
2: production line? I want a huge
0: statue of yeah. Jesus on the cross. Sure, sure. Make sure his buttocks are facing.
2: Yeah, you know. Away from the cross, so that so that my lead actor can mount him. Yes, yeah, yeah. so my lead,
0: I want that. I've never, and just like I've never seen it before. You will in this film. There is one exceptional
2: sequence. Um, yes, which there is. is. The sheer hutzpah of the film <laughs> to have an extended series of scenes where newborn children are killed, <laughs> capping it off with a mother putting a hot iron on her baby. Look, very little, if if any of it is on screen, yeah. I only suggested. Oh, but the vicious concept of it. Really sets us out from other mainstream horror films of the time. Absolutely, the best sequence in the film. I was just like, "Wow!" Like I yeah. can, you know, little
0: kids yeah. orchestrating the death of babies. Yeah. You know, um, a priest, I assume, drowning. Yeah. You know, a, a newborn.
2: It's extraordinary. Yeah, and it's one of those things that I forgot about this. the The only part I remember was the the mum with the mainly because of the the head turning of the kid. Mm. I remember that from when I was a kid, with the head turned, and he was all like. Yeah. Desiccated and stuff. Yeah, yeah. And then she, the hot iron. I remembered that part, <clears> but <throat> I didn't remember the montage of kill. So yeah, I was like, yeah, yeah. oh yeah, wow. <laughs> like, that's yeah, a, yeah, yeah. I'm surprised it wasn't seared into my brain as a as a. You young know,
0: I'm, I'm, I've got to say, and I've only th- thought about this now, but it did sort of bug me at the time. Is we don't find out why he doesn't kill the Nazarene. Yeah. Like, why does it? Like, it's teased that his his comp, his his right hand man Dean might be lying about the fact that his own child was. You know, as yeah. the Nazarene was born. But the, that's apparently not true. Yeah. But so why wasn't something made of that? Wouldn't it? W- I, 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 w- I kind of would like to see an alternative vision of this film. Well, I actually would like to see an alternative, <laughs> but one in which there are people fighting to keep the child alive. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Not like bumbling around trying to kill Damien, yeah. but actually, uh, you know, trying to protect this newborn.
2: Yeah. You know. Yeah, that would be great. Actually, I mean, that's not on in this film at all no no and th- and that's really the the splitting of the uh of the narrative through line like i'm not quite sure what it is is it like people trying to kill him or is he trying to kill other people like um, yeah. you know th- that that idea of him trying to go and kill the the, the cross is... The second coming is introduced fairly late, like yeah, as as sure. a motivation for him. Yeah, like we are aware that you know there's gonna be this comet, there's gonna be this thing coming, and mm. you know all that kind of stuff. Mm. So, but one of the bright spots is the music, and this mm. Jerry Goldsmith returns for a third time, and his music carries many of the scenes. It just visually, Omen Three has like this gauzy haze across it, which I didn't really like, and uh, it and it still maintains an autumnal setting, but with just way less impact than the previous two installments, so obviously more than the first. Yeah. Look, The Omen 3, The Final Conflict, was a compromise after the lukewarm reception uh, Part 2 received. So the fourth film was abandoned and the plot accelerated so that the story culminated as a trilogy. And even though it stretches its wings beyond the first two films' identical central plots Mm. of discovering the Antichrist, Part 3 just never takes flight. Whether it is the limp supporting characters or the lack of urgency from Damien while hunting the young Jesus or the film stumbling in the third act with a really ill-judged love story. Um, part three has a, just lacks a central pathos that the first two parts contained for me. there was just I just wasn't sure what the narrative drive was here for a lot of it yeah um and yeah, and the ending really bugged me like actually the, the very kind of, the final shots were quite beautiful in some ways you know where you yeah. had like the kind of angelic
0: presence that ending just showed a real dearth of imagination yeah. really it felt and it's not surprised if they rushed it that that's what they ended up with, but it just yeah. I just felt a weak stumbling towards a closure.
2: But well, why did
0: Lisa Harrow deserve to kill the Antichrist? Yeah, well uh, I really I mean, I'm guessing what what else is she doing in this film? Yeah, but um, you
2: know, but, I mean, you know, as a character, like <laughs> yeah, I mean sure. it's it, from a writing point of view it was like yeah. ah, this, this is poetic as you're gonna get about mm. Yeah. It just seemed like you would almost start from the from the end and work your way backwards in that story rather than kind of go, <clears throat> Oh, it kind of feels like that we almost went chronologically. <laughs> you think yeah. you kind of figure out what the end of that was and then work your way and make that, you know, central to yeah. to the drive of the of the narrative. How many for explainable deaths have you given it here? Oh, look,
0: a lot of deaths here that are very
2: problematic. Uh, yeah. There's
0: a uh, suicide, which is typically complex, actually. We haven't really even talked oh, about yeah, it. Oh, yeah, I was going to talk about uh, that. More Rube
2: Goldberg than usual. I use that exact expression. Well, well you have to, eh? Yes. Yeah.
0: Like, I don't know how it's arranged, and yeah. so many ways it could have gone wrong. And the fact is, it, it didn't, so there yeah. you go. But it, it felt unnecessarily complicated. Uh, but I guess still plausible, I suppose. Yeah, I mean, yeah. it had to be a suicide. Uh, the next death is some sort of accident, as I said. Unlikely, but I have no better <laughs> explanation. This is what it is. But then things get wonky, you mm. know? Two priests kill another, and then, like I say, I assume drown, mm. but maybe starve, or maybe get mm. rescued eventually by someone who hears some yeah. screaming. God, who knows? Um, but either way, that's going to attract some attention. Two mm. priests stuck behind a grating somewhere. In the, um, one guy is thrown from a bridge, and another eaten by fox hunting hounds. Yeah. yeah, in the company of Damien himself, so there's yeah. some explanations required there, and again, clearly questionable. Uh, there are, and of course there are a horde of dead babies. Yeah, hordes of them that even in the world of the film cannot go
2: unnoticed and do not. Uh, so all in all, I've got to give it a two. Oh, you and I are on the same here too. Yeah, two out of six for explainable deaths. The opening is a cracker. Um, sure. Because the myth of death is, it's actually the way that it's. ...shown to us, which I did appreciate, so I've got to give the, the director credit oh, here. I enjoyed the sequence. Yeah, yeah, because the method of death is withheld until the very last moment. Mm. A man under the thrall of Damien uh, with the old Rottweiler coming to have a chat to him... going um, commits suicide by tying the door of his office to the trigger of a gun pointed at his head. When a bunch of visitors knock on the door, he calmly invites them in. And when they enter the room, it causes the gun to fire just in time for them to see him killed with his... Yeah... Brain splattered everywhere The key here is not seeing any of the Rube Goldberg <laughs> Mechanics until the final seconds yeah. But they still have the tension Through the camera shots and the music So that we can f- feel suspense But not know the full horror yeah. Until the very end But as you say, all the other ones A man thrown off by a, by a horse off a bridge uh, Dogs mauling a man A series of children being killed Some of them a little bit more difficult to explain Like a priest, he, he drowns a child at baptism no accident involved there. No, yeah. that's like, well, uh, that priest mm. murdered my child. Yeah, in, in, in front of me. Yeah. Yeah. I <laughs> like, wow, that might be a little bit difficult to explain. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so yeah, I've, I've gone for the same there. Huh. So. Uh, look,
0: on creepy animals, returning to the rock, well, it was a sound idea after the, from for me at least, mm-hmm. underperformers of the ra- ra- ravens from Damien Omento. I, I know love we the, the we'll, just have, we'll just have to put that beside us. Yeah. Have, Put that aside. But the dogs do doggone all in this film. Uh, yeah. I feel like an afterthought thrown in because the filmmakers know they're I- iconic. Mm. Uh, but I think the canines could have done more. Uh, I'm awarding them a
2: paltry one. It's maybe one of my lowest scores. All right. I- I've gone for a yeah. I've gone for a two on this. Um, yep. A disappointing lack of spooky animals in the final conflict. I was going to go for one as well. The hypnotizing Rottweiler makes a reappearance. But the the one that picked it up for me was the pack of hunting dogs mauling a would-be assassin and a vicious scene that makes a late charge to claim a couple of points for this category yeah, fair enough. um yeah because it was pretty nasty and then i think as you as you rightfully pointed out the, i think it was the accumulation of that when he when he went back and then um you know put the blood on the kid yeah, which was yeah. unsettling yeah so uh yeah yeah and um satanic lackeys
0: Oh, okay, look, performance of lackeys. Look, if Damien Omen Two was a high-point point in hellish Henchmen, mm-hmm. then the final conflict is really the n- n- nadir of the occupation, you know? A pitiful last meek squeak before they all end up on the satanic scrap heap. Mm. Uh, for a start, if they were actually doing their jobs properly, Damien wouldn't have to keep stepping up himself, right? Yeah. Uh, every dumbass who tries to stab Damien either dies in an accident or is dispatched by Damien and his powers. Mm. Where are the followers when he needs them? You know, where are they? Mm. They should be doing their job. Mm. Secondly, Damien has a lot of lackeys. I mean, yeah. hundreds it would seem. Everything from Boy Scouts to businessmen. But do any of them kill the Nazarene? Mm. They do not. <laughs> they just manage to kill enough innocent babies for people to get suspicious. That's mm. all they do. Thirdly, Damien's right-hand lackey is such an incompetent that he goes and gets his wife pregnant. so that mm. She delivers a child at about the same time as the Nazarene's arrival creating all sorts of workplace awkwardness and really muddying the waters, you yeah. know, and his relationship with his boss slash Satan. And, of course, finally, the real measure of success is success. And spoiler alert, folks, they don't get the job done. No. No. The Nazarene rises, Damien is stabbed, and the long-promised apocalypse does not transpire, which I'm pretty disappointed by, by the way. <laughs> this is an absolute failure on so many levels. I have
2: to give them a zero. Right, right. Uh, you're very harsh on your, on your rulings here I've gone for I have expect a lot from my satanic lackeys <laughs> You do Keep that in mind, listeners If you want to be a satanic lackey for Simon Yeah you Bring it A game Get the job done Otherwise you'll be talking to HR um, Look, yeah, I gave this a 2 out of 6 for the satanic lackeys Wow A disappointing aspect of the film is the lack of lackeys And the main one that exists is a less of an agent of evil And more like just spineless middle management Yeah He's so annoying Um, I was quite happy to see him get an eye into the face uh, at the end. You had it it coming. Yeah, look, especially after Billy Whitelaw and Lance Henriksen's powerful presence in the previous films, what saves the lackeys um, from a one out of six I hadn't even considered of giving them a zero is he excellently named The Disciples of the Watch. Uh, hypnotized horde who go out and slaughter infant boys in the hope of killing the reborn Jesus but they do so while lacking any individual personalities yeah they're just kind of I don't really know who these Automatons, people are eh? yeah, yeah just, they're just like uh yeah and so um, I really did like that sequence when he's you know I don't know how they all got there helicopter he helicoptered in and they were all in this quarry or something so good and he's just like talking to them saying go out and you know kill a Nazarene yeah and I just like the, their name the disciples of the watch um, yeah, yeah, yeah. it's it's a good name and it's kind of what I want is yeah that's what that's what I was talking about when I cycle right back to the beginning of talking about the final conflict I kind of wanted him to have that power from from the beginning from the opening scenes yeah. him I want to see those hordes of like yeah he has people under thrall his entire country yeah. under his you know that yeah. would have been a great way to do this if he was um you know this kind of imperial might basically versus this tiny one person, so it was. It was an inverse of the opening, the opening film, The Omen, 1976's yeah. Omen, because in that it's kind of like, you know, basically the rest of the world against this one guy with some crazy lackeys. Mm. Um, it should have been the other way around in this. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean,
0: it, it is the real failing of this film that yeah. it doesn't really imagine a better scenario. For yeah, this and you know,
2: and 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 like you say, an apocalyptic kind of world, a world that's gone to to hell. Um, yeah. You know, as close to hell as he can yeah.
0: get. And see guys like
2: reading Fox News transcripts. Yeah. And it's like, going, oh, um, price of petrol's rough. gone up a little yeah, bit. Yeah, you yeah, You know, oh, well, our crops aren't too good. Yeah. It's like, let's just be like a wasteland. Yeah. And yet they can't show us any of this. It's yeah. just, you know. Um. Yeah.
0: And like you say, his his main lackey is just... He doesn't seem committed at all to this enterprise.
2: <laughs> no, he doesn't seem like a genuinely satanic lackey. Yeah, I mean, you've got the actual antichrist there, and and, and at some point he's like, well, he's just he, you're going too far." I think he almost says that at one point towards the yeah. end. Yeah, and like, yet he's the first time i have seen a satanic lackey who actually is
0: in confidence with. Yeah, you know, who is like sharing secrets with him, and yet he seems like the least
2: likely. Yeah. Yeah. It's crazy. Oh, terrible! He'd just be like, "I oh, don't make lackeys like they used to." Where's Mrs. Baylok when you need her? Oh, totally. She Where's wouldn't. She wouldn't have been questioning a thing. Yeah. What about Lance Henriksen? He's still got to be knocking around, right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. He didn't die. So no. Go get him on the. Get him. Oh, he'd be. He'd, he'd do a much better job. Yeah. You know. Mm-hmm. So do you enjoy watching the Omen trilogy? Very much. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> After all of that, I really enjoyed watching this as well. I mean, I, I know that I know the first one, Inside Out. I don't know how many times I've seen it. Quite a lot. Um, I'd like to say six. Um, yeah, <laughs> but uh, but the second one was good. I've to watched watch. each of them six times. <laughs> yes. Um. And yeah. And I and I did go you know walk around screaming Nazarene for the twenty four hours
0: after. Oh, Nazarene! Eh? The amount of times that film says
2: Nazarene. Yeah, but it was good to watch Final Conflict again because that is the one that I'm completely. I really didn't know much about. I, yeah. I remember. Yeah. yeah like no, that. I feel the same. I actually bought a copy of it. Oh,
0: right. Yeah, yeah. So I've got to own a copy of that. How do I not own that? Film? Yeah. Um, yeah, but again, that was the one I was most. It's the one I had the least experience with. Yeah.
2: Yeah, yeah. yeah, that's
0: right. I may have seen it only once. And so I had that vague memory of the Boy Scouts kicking the soccer ball over the. You know, and a few other yeah. moments,
2: but uh, a lot of it
0: was quite new to me.
2: Yeah, I, I really didn't remember much about it at all. Um. So it was good to rewatch that. Whereas I feel like. Like I say, the first one I've definitely seen a number of times, and the second one, even then, I I knew that I remember the deaths of the second one really vividly, which is yeah. W- whereas this time around, what caught me was the Damien's kid's performance and the relationship with Mark, which apparently originally was going to be a love story, and they changed oh, that. So there you go. Huh? So they changed it into uh, uh, into into Mark. Um, yeah. yeah, it was a good one to watch uh, all three. Yeah. Back to back. How closely did you watch them together? Uh, not terribly closely. I don't think right, actually.
0: Okay. Yeah, yeah. You know, there were decent gaps between them. Yeah, yeah,
2: yeah. Uh, pretty much blasted through them in a weekend for me. Yeah.
0: So I tell you what, I have got into in this last uh, couple of months though is is uh, commentary tracks. Oh yeah. Yeah. yeah so right. I've watched a few films where I've actually just watched the commentary track. Right. Yeah, like I watched on. the film. Then, so Awakening, I watched, and then I watched the commentary track. Nice. And I did that with uh, Circus of Horrors, which is a, a Hammer film. We discussed when we did Hammer. Yeah. Uh, great commentary track on that one, which I watched. And nice. um, so, yeah, I'm really enjoying commentary tracks again. Because that feels like a thing that dropped away, obviously. Yeah. Because people watch their movies on streaming, you now. They don't watch them the way yeah. they used to. Um, whereas I'm a DVD hoarder, you know. Yeah. So I've started rediscovering the joy of just listening to people who know about what they're talking about. Yeah. Talk about a film. I tried watching the commentary track for a Final Conflict. But, yeah. um Yeah. Who, who was on the commentary? Oh, Craig? the director. Yeah. Oh, right, okay. But I uh, didn't have a lot to offer. Um, yeah. Whereas uh, the one for The Awakening and uh, the one for Circus of Horrors were film critics, who right. yeah. passionate and knowledgeable film critics, yeah. so that was great.
2: Yeah, film critic ones are really good, actually, if yeah. anyone's listening. Um, go and hunt those out. Yeah, uh, yeah, totally. I reckon they're always a good sign if you've got mm. a film critic mm. talking on there, because they'll talk um, th- very insightful and um, clear and concise.
0: Yeah, and they've done their research. Yeah. Or, or they just have that information welled up inside them. Either way, yeah. you know, it's insightful. Mm. Yeah. Spoiler alert.
2: Okay, so there's spoiler alert for this month. Thanks to everyone for listening. I hope you enjoyed the um dip into uh, the satanic that we had. Um, yeah, absolutely. Hey, just before we go, uh, did you have a favourite film of the month? Um, I didn't. Look, I'm not sure of my favourite film of the month, but I am sure of my worst film of the month. Oh. um, Which is Mindhunters. It's the kind of film that I started watching out of curiosity and continue watching purely for this podcast. So a group of FBI profilers doing an exercise on an island wind up being hunted by a serial killer. I'm going to spoil this because you won't want to watch it. But it stars Christian Slater in the Janet Lee in Psycho role, uh, getting killed in a laughable liquid nitrogen trap that isn't as fun as Jason X. Uh, Then there's LL Cool J, playing the same character he does in every film, LL Cool J. Then there's Johnny Lee Miller with an unconvincing American accent. Val Kilmer has a cameo in a single scene where he does the Brad Pitt eating cake while acting superior with cool detachment trick. It's an Agatha Christie plot revised for the early 2000s with a laugh-out-loud montage of dusting fingerprints, Colorful computer screens, analyzing blood and thoughtful looks beneath furrowed brows as the camera swirls around our remaining detectives. It's so reminiscent of CSI. It's only missing a who theme song and you know David Crusoe putting sunglasses on. All the characters are supposed to be top of their class, psychology experts, yet they capitulate into hysterical, egocentric behavior and stupid decisions immediately.
0: I want to see this film really badly.
2: (laughs) They show no ability to read clues and pull out their guns at just the slightest noise. Uh, The cherry on top at the end credits was a revelation that this was directed by Rennie Harlan. Mindhunters was jammed between two Golden Raspberry nominated films for Harlan, an award he's been nominated for six times and yet somehow Mm -hmm. not for this. Uh, Mindhunters is entertaining for all the wrong reasons and it's Especially as a meticulous killer who outthinks the brightest the federal agency has to offer, then conveniently dissolves into a pool of stupidity in the climactic scene with the final girl. <laughs> ah, it was uh, it was fun to watch. This is one of those ones where I was like, huh, what's this about? And then I literally watched the opening five minutes and was like, I'm going to watch the rest of this. It's going to be terrible.
0: It sounds great. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: It's it's awful. Nice. And then I, I didn't realise it was Rooney Harlan until the end, and I was like, oh this yeah. Is Brilliant! Wow. So, um, yeah, Mind Hunters. I think it's on Netflix. So check it yeah, out. So I'll look it up. <laughs> and uh, what's the music we're going out to? Well, uh, we could really only kind of go out to, um, you know, Ave Santani, which yeah. is a um, uh, hail Satan yeah um, uh, but this version is done by uh, Phantomists, so we've talked about them many a time, um, a kind of a super group uh, with Mike Patton from Faith More and um, um, people from Melvin's and Slayer in that band. Uh, and yeah, this is a great little um, rendition um they, they do. So uh, you know may this lull you to uh, lullaby you to sleep, um, <laughs> have it chanting in your head. Along with a Nazarene. Yeah. yeah. Pleasant dreams, everyone. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And uh, don't worry about the ravens tapping at your window. No, or
0: kiss your huge, um, backwardly facing Jesus
2: cross <laughs> Good night.
0: Fuck yourself in.
2: Yeah. And uh, we'll see you all next month.
1: All right.